All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, it's an epic one. We have Kenny Werner, a pianist, a composer, author, lecturer, and director of the Effortless Mastery Institute out of Berkeley. Kenny has been a world-class pianist composer for over 40 years. He has a prolific catalog of compositions, recordings, and publications, one of which started a whole department in Berkeley and is how I became aware of Kenny Warner. In 1996, he wrote the book Effortless Mastery, Liberating the Master Musician Within. And for me, it was the class that we never had in music school, right? You you learn all these academic ways of how to play, what to play, but never how to feel and how to get in that space of playing. And after you graduate and you've gone through all this training and you've learned all these things and you become aware of so many things and you've grown, but also you feel like you haven't grown. And for me, one of the things I wanted to be able to do was just feel, feel free, be able to use all these things I've learned and have them just come out of me. And that puts you at a weird situation where how do you learn to feel and think? You've been trained to think on how to approach all these things. How do you just feel them now? A guide for balance, right? And that's where Kenny's book, Effortless Mastery, came in. I was reading Victor Wooten's book, uh, The Music Lesson, and it was kind of like, once I got done with that, I'm like, I craved more of that type of insight. In Kenny's book, there's a, a four-step mindfulness approach to training your brain to appreciate the master musician within and also use that technical aspect. Now, I'm going to let Kenny explain more of how that works in the conversation. This interview was a big one for me. Um, I can point to a couple written books that really profoundly impacted my philosophical approach to life and music, one of which being Effortless Mastery, The Music Lesson by Victor Wooten, and Writings on Bruce Lee. And this is a really big honor to be able to pick the mind of someone whose philosophical and spiritual approach has affected my life. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with you guys. But before we get into it, I got to tell you about Kenny's new book. It's called Becoming the Instrument, Lessons on Self-Mastery from Music to Life. And it's like a, it's a paired sequel, or it can be a prequel to Effortless Mastery. There's no real right way to read it. And it kind of like takes the ideas of Effortless Mastery and applies them to the bigger concept of life. It's a fantastic, inspiring read, and I highly recommend you check out Becoming the Instrument. It reinvigorated my mindful approach to practicing, and I believe it can do the same for you. Before we get into it, I also want to share that I talked with Vivian Arts. She is the only other teacher of effortless mastery, and um, so some. if you want to dive more into effortless mastery, check out the conversation me and Vivian had. Um, also... Before jumping into this conversation with Kenny, and if you're new to the podcast, I play in a band called C-Level, letter C-Level. We are a high-energy funk-punk reggae rock group based out of Cleveland, Ohio. We take uh, 12-string acoustic instruments and run them through Marshall amplifiers, and we got a couple of dates to plug, one of which is July 14th at the West Side Bowl. We are opening for the band The Bumping Uglies with joint operation, and then August 17th, we are playing at the Rock Hall with Mellow Man Funk. So if you're in the Ohio area, we would be honored if you would join us on one of those dates. Um, anywho, now this conversation was like was like a lecture in one of the best ways. Like I'm sitting there taking a lot in, and I think you guys will be as well. Before we get to the conversation, if you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast and any of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to amazing guests like Kenny and sharing insight like that with you. So without further ado, this is my conversation with Kenny Werner. Um, the first question I wanted to ask you was um, the influence of illusions. Oh, well, that's a nice question. You know the book. Yeah. And it was the guy who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull. Uh, what's his name? Uh, you must know if you know the book. Richard Bach? Bach? No. Well, anyway, 
It doesn't matter anyway. Um, the influence on me of illusions? Yes. I read it at a time where everything, the bottom had dropped out. I was in Europe without being too specific about, without making it too long a story. Something I went there I thought was going to set the tone for a significant point in my life was gone. And instead of just going home and crying about it, I went on to Central Europe, which I had never been. And I went to Paris, then I went to Munich, then I went to Amsterdam. And there were times when, as can be, you feel collapsed. You don't feel supported from within. Because what you usually have for supporting you has just been withdrawn. But I had this little book with me. I cannot remember why I had it with me. And I started to read it. And I started reading it over and over again. Because it is about letting go, which at that time was not such a cliche as it is now. Right? Um, and the influence was... Uh, you know, the book starts the way it ends. There's a, a messiah in the Midwest who's he, he's a flyer. He does fly shows. That's what it is, a messiah, right? And at the end, I don't remember how, but you read that and you can go right back and read it again. So I just read it over and over again. And there were periods during this dropout of whatever comforts your life seemed to be about, right? That moments of illumination. I've had that happen several times in my life. And if you go for that, then there are moments of illumination. And then there's moments of fear and moments of sadness. Uh, illusion was sort of my metaphysical connection, ethereal connection to the possibility of emerging victorious from actually the loss of traditional securities. So that was the, uh, that was the influence of it. It made me sore sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. So like at the time when you're you're traveling and you're like trying to grasp your own music career, right? Cuz you came from a band do I guess from what the story I read, you started you played your own bar mitzvah and got hired by the band. That's exactly right. <laughs> and then 13 on I was playing bar mitzvahs, but now I was 30. So it wasn't like so cool anymore. Weddings and bar mitzvahs. That's it's a it's a particular type of gig where the what you're doing isn't like the kind of focus. It's moving the room. It's the party, or the you know you're really serving the people in a oh, different it was, way. Yeah, and that was cool when I was thirteen. Probably even cool when I was seventeen. But at thirty, I thought by then something else would be happening. So I guess my next question with that is, like. At that point, when you your influence and starting to think in a different type of way, um, you at one point there's I've read something with Ron Carter as well. Oh, well, do you want the connection? Okay, yeah. So what happened was because I went on to Europe and because, like I said, there's a thing in Indian philosophy, Shakti, right? And if you believe that your life has a sort of destiny, predestiny, guided, any of the above, then one thing they would say is trust the Shakti, mm -hmm. right? I didn't know anything about any of that at the time, but it took trust to go on to your, I didn't go there for a career thing. It was a woman thing, right? And that's a long story. I don't need to tell it, but I thought I was going to ask someone to marry me. <laughs> And this person waited a long time. All right, so that's anyway. So with the original purpose of going there to England, gone, I had two choices. I'd go home and cry in my pillow, or I could trust something. The ticket back then in those days, plane tickets were easy to uh, just reassign. It's not like it is today. So somehow I changed it to be able to go to, uh, I don't remember how I did any of that, but I, Paris first then go to Munich. I don't know if I took a train or I took another plane. It's all a blur. And then Amsterdam before I went home. So that's the first time I was in Central Europe. Most jazz, even today, but most of there was Central Europe. Germany, Italy, Spain, uh, the Netherlands, Belgium, England. No, not England is not Central Europe. 
And there was the least amount of jazz in England, but I never went to England for the jazz. I went there because my girlfriend was English. So I'd visit her sometimes. I never went to where, not where music, where gigs were. So since my trip was unexpectedly cut short, because the purpose of it was already rejected, right? I had this time left on the ticket. I either go home and cry in my pillow, or uh, it's nice you asked me this because nobody ever asked me this stuff. That's just different because I do a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. Not with other people. I teach a lot and the lessons are always the same. So this is fun. Um, so I decided to take a chance. You could just say it that way. Trust something. Don't go home. Go somewhere you've never been before. So I went to Paris. I only knew one person. She was just a friend of a friend. But the friend was good enough so that she moved in with her boyfriend, let me stay in her apartment. Here I'm a stranger in Paris, fighting sadness from a unrequited love, right? Right. Dug myself in doing it. I remember coming from the airport and seeing the Eiffel Tower, and that was one of those moments of illumination. Wow, dig me, man. I'm really trusting life. Yeah. I'm going on the way of life, you know, letting it go, right? And while I was there, this is a great story, so I'll tell you the whole story. While I was there, she also had a friend at uh, French Radio, you know, that's all state-run radio. Uh, I can't remember the name of that French Radio, but a lot of jazz. A lot of, actually, anything about French Radio at the time, they didn't have all these exact, it's either, you know, this is a funk station, this is soul, this is underground, that's a jazz station. You could hear classical. They played anything in any kind of rotation. So that was interesting. But anyway, I went down there. And they recorded me, you know, in the studio, playing and singing, because I used to sing as well. Yeah. It was not my name, but I used to sing, right? So I'm there, and uh, and then they gave me a cassette tape of it. So then I went on to Munich. I mean, it was fun to be, it was great to be in Paris. I was still lonely and scared, but it was great to be in Paris. So then they... Uh, I went to Munich. I had a friend there that I think he went to school with or whatever. And I could stay in his apartment, you know. And uh, so then one night I went to the main club called the Domitzel in, in Munich. And I used to be pretty, like, unaware of what's appropriate. For example, there was a great jazz band playing there. But on the break, I just went up and played solo piano. Oh, man. <laughs> That's where I used to yeah. be. I did that Vanguard once, and I think it was Herbie Hancock's group. Yeah, but I didn't know about Herbie Hancock. And then when I started to play, bass player and drummer came back and played with me. Wow. Anyway, this gig, I just played solo. Yeah, and like the audience went nuts. So then I go to the bar, and I sit down and have a drink or whatever. And there's a German guy there. He says, "You know, I could book you." <laughs> and I said, "Really?" He said, "Do you?" have any of your music that I can take. <laughs> so I mean, in my breast pocket, yeah. it's a what I just made in Paris. I said, yeah, here's what I do. And I gave it to him. <laughs> and my number, I guess, you know, yeah. my home number. I didn't have a cell phone back then. Uh, and I also went to Enger Records. Uh, I guess I must have intended to present something to them because I brought something else with me here. In the lofts, I used to play some of those concerts, a solo piano concert. And they both laid down and they said wow we, that was my first my second record ever first of my own music right so if i hadn't gone to munich i never would have met with engine i don't remember all the details so i don't remember why i even had that music on me but i gave this guy he said i just did in paris right so now i got a record deal at least to do a record i wouldn't have had that if i hadn't if my girlfriend had accepted my marriage proposal I never would have gone to, to Paris. And if I went, didn't go to Paris, I wouldn't have had a tape. I would never would have gone to mute. I would have done the whole thing, right? Well, now I just go to my friend. I got another friend I went to school with. He's living in Amsterdam on a boat, you know. So I hung with him on the boat a few days. I feel triumphant because I did triumph over this heartbreak. And I did trust this little book. I mean, I just kept reading it, and it would just sort of take me what I understand now, I and mean, you can explain it a lot of different ways, and I, that's what my books are about, there's the conscious mind, and it's simply everything you're conscious of. There's a subconscious mind, and that's where a lot of stuff you do that you don't know why you do, 
or where the hurt is, where the woundedness is in today's psychological terms, where the trauma is, you know, right? And then it's the super conscious mind. That's been around in, in psychological research for a long time. Super conscious mind is that part you might call a universal mind. But that part that's connected to all things, the Buddhist thing, make me one with whatever, you know. So, but that's actually a part of the mind, whether God exists or not, it doesn't really have anything to do with being able to validate that. But one can feel like they are being visited by God if they're in their superconscious mind. It is definitely a little more metaphysical feeling than all the physical details of your life. So I finished that trip and I got home and I had a record date. I had this agent that said he could book me. I never had a European tour together. Now this guy called me. Yeah. Said I booked you three weeks in Europe. Oh, this from no weeks ever. Yeah. Now here, here's the funny part of it. When I recorded in Paris, I always would, back then I would always sing some too. So on that recording, I sang. I never really, I did like one night, a, one night a week at a coffee house in Boston when I was at Berkeley, like 10 years earlier, and occasionally would sing, basically just to freak everybody out. I never even gigs of singing, but he heard the singing on the tape. And when I got there, I saw this huge poster, which I still had for many years. Not, I got rid of it, but of me sitting there like this, and it says Ken Verna, it used to be Kenny, not Ken, Ken not Kenny. A singing piano player. <laughs> that was a poster. So yeah. not only was I expected to go to to do a tour, and they were like rats, what they call ratskellos. They're like, you know, basement bars. Yeah. And an upright piano there, you know. I think they're almost all that. Maybe there's a couple of decent stages, but it was gig every night. And actually, comparatively to the money I would normally make, it was pretty good money every night. So the weekly thing was really good, but I had to sing. It was on the poster <laughs> and I've never sung like, I don't know how many gigs there was a week, four or five, maybe six. Right. That's what I want to say, but I remember I never sang four or five or six nights a week. I was getting hoarse, but I'd always get it up somehow Yeah. to uh, do the gig. And I'd be singing away. I do Joe Cocker, Ray Charles. I had that kind of voice. Yeah. Some Beatles, and of course, then play some jazz. That's, you know, so somehow I made it through three weeks. But when I got home from that trip that I trusted and I just used the book Illusions, I got a three week tour out of it. I got a, my first solo record that was of my music on a really good jazz label, Enja, which is pronounced Enya Records mm. in Europe. <clears throat> and then I got a call from Ron Carter. Now, I never got a call from anybody to ever tour in Europe, yeah. let alone Ron Carter. His piano player was Chinese, a friend of mine, and he couldn't get his visa straight. So he, uh, Ron had, I want to say four weeks, but maybe maybe less, tour in Europe. Now you're talking about the big festivals, because yeah. Ron Carter. And his piano player could not leave because of visa. He recommended me. And that's the connection between the book Illusions and Ron Carter, between that trip I actually believe that when I trusted and took a chance and went for what had no support, but the Shakti, which I call now, or inspiration or intuitive, you know, whatever you want to call it, instead of going home and retreating, that I broke the ice uh, vibrationally and I considered the two things connected. Now, Ron Carr's calling is not really an accident. It's because I went forward after I got turned down to Europe and things all kind of, my career actually started. I mean, this is an amazing day because I went there because, yeah, I was doing some gigs and lofts and some jazz gigs, but still was supporting myself at weddings and bar mitzvahs. Actually, I stopped. My father said he saw I was in pain and I'm very talented. Okay, whatever that sounds like. I should have been doing more than putting on a tuxedo and playing Wayne's Bar Mitzvahs. A lot of it's my fault, the trouble I was getting into at that time. And a lot of it was just uh, bad luck or karma. Or what I, whatever you believe is why things happen. That's what it was. It was what it was. It is what it is, right? And he said, I want you to stop doing those Wayne's Bar Mitzvahs. It looked, they seem to be really hurting you. I'll give you $200 a week. Just work on your 
career or your art or your music. I really appreciate it. And that probably went on for one or two years. And still, I, you know, I did the odd concert or whatever, but it still wasn't happening. I finally decided to give it up and go to this girl, this poor girl that's been waiting for me for since the early 70s. And now we're talking about 1980. And say, okay, I can keep doing Wednesday's and Bar Mitzvahs and I can be the leader and we can make really good money and we'll get a nice house in Westchester. And I was envisioning this other life, yeah. giving up being an artist because it wasn't working out. And she never had the guts to tell me. She waited, but then she met a guy in her local town. She lived near Oxfordshire, you know, and she could never tell me. We had conversations. I didn't find out till I got there. She was very shy and she just couldn't tell me. So now that I got there, that's how I found out we were going to get married. Now I went on to Europe and when I came home, I had a career. I had a solo piano record. I had a three week tour in Europe. And then Ron Carter called me. I had like think a four week tour in Europe in the summer. I could say officially my career started when I actually went over there to officially give it up. It is a pretty incredible story, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It, well, it also makes me think of the story in um, Becoming the Instrument about the, instead of the oops, turning that to the ah. Like, yeah. I, yeah. Found, I found that bit in it, like, because I, I, I stumbled across Effortless Mastery years ago. My book has the CD in the back, right? And, yeah. um, it hit me at a really impactful time, which I'm sure this is a story. This is a this is a story you're getting used to hearing, which I hear it a lot, yeah. and I'm very grateful that I hear that a lot. And like it, it's so. I, but it it hit me at a really impactful time when I was I was going through music school, studying jazz and music therapy, and starting teaching at the same time, and then doing the original groups and stuff all in like. So there was like no time to like really shed stuff. So the mini yeah. the mini minutes that were there were like had to be impactful in a way. But learning like going through the first book and kind of learning like these, it made me really accept mistakes in a different way. And your story, like, is is that is that in the career form? Like, like they go from that, and then hanging out with Ron Carter. Like, what was that? To kind of dive more into it, how was that tour? What was like? going from these small Ron pubs. Carter is, a, is a, a certain kind of personality himself. It's not just like going on tour with somebody. Right. It's not even like just going on tour with someone famous. You have to, I mean, I don't want to real, reveal much about Ron Carter, and I won't pretend I know him that well, but you definitely, part of the experience is Ron Carter being Ron Carter. A very proprietary guy in the sense that you could be incorrect around him. It was easy. He was late, relaxed, but it was a quiet kind of like, I don't want to say don't piss him off because that's really unfair, but you know what I mean? You felt you couldn't just say, hey, Ron, you know, made you look, <laughs> or, uh, you know, your shoelace is untied. You know? Yeah, yeah. That kind of guy. He has a lot of self-respect, which is great. It was a great lesson. And... He at least demands, without saying anything, that you, in turn, respect him. Parameters of that respect are uh, strong, you know? There's no right or wrong. What the, per the respect and space a person demands or gives themselves is the space that they'll have or someone will violate that space. And if that person has good self-esteem, they'll let you know it, right? It was like that. You were a little timid around him. And, uh, but here I was playing the big stages during this. The summer is, and still is, I mean, a lot of damage has been done between the pandemic and just the fact that American commercialism slowly, sooner or later, erodes the artistic culture of other places. See, other places are anywhere from a couple of thousand years before America to thousands of years before America. America is invented at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. Therefore, America's culture is industry. America's culture is finance. 
The only reason America has culture other than that is because they are the derivative culture is Europe. And the fact that it's got such a rich culture is because of all the people that have come from so many places. And the most shameful reason is because of slavery, it has one of the richest music cultures in the world, but it wasn't really America. It was people that were brought here under incredible cruelty. And I don't know, you know, I don't really know what justice is, to tell you the truth, because you would think, and it may still be coming, here's a country built on wiping out a culture, the Indians, and then a genocide and, and everything just as bad as Nazi Germany, if not worse. But except this lasts not the length of the Second World War, it lasts 400 years. I mean, no, the last, if you want to argue that after the Civil War, it's a little, then you got Jim Crow, that goes to the 50s or 60s. Remember, it wasn't a voting rights thing, it's the 1960s. They were brought over in the 1600s. And yet, the music that resulted from that unspeakable horror is why America is one of the most envied countries in the world for music, theater, culture, sports. So I don't know, I don't get it, you know? I. But that's the way it worked out. Justice, which we have a linear idea of justice. This is justice, this is unjust. Whatever it is beyond the physical, justice is, first of all, either to our eyes, which are earthly, there is no justice. You know? I mean, it occasionally happens, but unjust, unjustice or injustice could happen just as easily. It seems like just the... Uh, luck of the drawer, or the unluck of the drawer, right? But on another level, let's say the karmic level, I mean, I've read about it, you know, the idea of reincarnation. That changes the whole equation of justice. A soul comes here and is so unfortunate or misfortunate, right? And how do you explain it? My father was an atheist, <laughs> or so he said. And he used to say, if you give God the credit, you also have to give him the blame. And I grew up with a healthy mistrust of religion, because my father used to express it every weekend. And he had a great sense of humor. He said he was going to write a book, Thank God I'm an Atheist. <laughs> he had a fantastic humor, of which mostly I get from him. My mother had a great sense of humor, too. But So, you know, how do you, what are you giving, who are you giving glory to? There's some black people in a church in, what was it, North Carolina, South Carolina? They were there worshiping this God. And someone comes in and shoots everybody. Where's God? I mean, this is not an original complaint. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, even holy people, grapple with, if God is so great, if God is so just, if God is love, how has he let these things happen? And I certainly don't have an answer. But the Indian, I don't know if Buddhism has reincarnation, but Hinduism definitely does. And even things that predate Hinduism, Jainism. Uh, I'm not sure, I'm not a historian. Uh, sun god. I mean, there were gods before there was a god that people wrote about. You know, the ancient, ancient religions, right? And But anyway, let's just deal with, say, the Hindu culture, reincarnation is uh, reincarnation is as much a reality as I don't know what you know uh, taking communion. It's not a theory. If you are a Hindu, it's a fact of life. You reincarnate. So if you buy that, then the rest of how that goes is the souls only come here to learn, and if they've done a life. They go back to wherever they go. <laughs> the Akashic record or whatever. I hear a lot of stuff. I don't know how anybody knows. Back to the light. I don't know. But and in that place, they choose their next lifetime to learn what they didn't learn that lifetime or to even the karmic accounts. Any of that. I have no idea if that's true. I have no idea if Jesus is true. I have no idea if God exists. 
But if I was to take the different explanations offered, that one makes the most sense to me. It's very hard to accept that, say, someone born a quadriplegic, their soul chose this. Very, you know. So I'm not telling you I'm all in, because I'm just another human here on Earth. And I keep working on myself to elevate my uh, awareness, my vision, what I can see. I don't know if I'll ever see that, but I am evolving, and I do work on evolving. So, you know, I'll take credit for doing it intentionally. I'm not just evolving because of the pain. That's usually how people evolve. When do they get most virtuous? When they're under the most amount of stress, pressure, crisis, or persecution. At the same time, in that horror, what pops out of the human psyche is greatness in some, you know? So it seems that horror, pain, uh, whatever version of that, the pressure of that forces some to achieve greatness. Would there be a Martin Luther King if there wasn't racism and slavery? What would he have to rise to? Why would he have had to rise? He might have just been another preacher. You know, would they have been a Gandhi if there was no British oppression for those centuries? Would they, you know what I mean? And so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. So it, the human condition on linear terms doesn't seem very just to me, but uh, reincarnation is uh, very plausible to me. I can't say I know it. I'd have to achieve that mystical state of uh, realization, God consciousness. I think I touched it occasionally. And the thing about music, which is why my, my book says, Becoming the Instrument, Lessons from, and Self-Mastery from Music to Life. I cannot be a guru. Where, you know, gurus, if you buy the premise, they see things on levels we can't see. They see the Shakti. They live in the Shakti. All pleasure and pain is the same. And every devotee is God. And their God, a real guru, not only is a real guru God incarnate, just like Jesus, but their message is, so are you. I actually believe that was Jesus' message. But because of ego, spiritual perfection doesn't have much of a shelf life on earth. It degenerates quite unintentionally into, look, let's say there's a Messiah. He's standing in the middle of a group. There's 12 guys around him. Messiah says some things very quietly, very humbly. The only people who heard him was the 12 people around him, right? And here's how it begins. Someone in the concentric circles says, what did he say? One of the 12 turned and I said, he said this, but it's like that game uh, Telephone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, multiply that by centuries and then add ego. Ego is the urge to control others or control anything and take a pure message and treat it with a little tincture of ego. <laughs> you know, a tincture of murder, you know, like a, 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 a what do you call it? Drop, a, Dropper, eyedropper, <laughs> an eyedropper of ego, mix it in, and before you know it, you're telling other people how to live. And then mix another 50 years or a century or maybe eight centuries, whatever, and then you've got power, money, land, you know. And now this thing has become an excuse to land grab to pilfer money, to kill people. The very person that preached this nonviolence is the person who's in name thousands, millions, how many wars? Before, and I can't really, I'm not, I am a historian in a way, I really am fascinated by history the older I get, but you could argue that the wars of the 20th century were not necessarily religious wars. But what about all the wars before that? 
And certainly, what about the Crusades? What about the Spanish Inquisition? What about the subjugation of the entire continent of South America? These were religious wars or religious persecution under the imperative or the premise of converting to a religion, right? Look at, you know, I didn't remember this until I was, saw it in a documentary on Mark Twain. And he's talking about Huckleberry Finn. It's not the book, name of the book, Huckleberry Finn. And at the end, is it, or no, Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer, I was thinking about that. I'm like, wait, which one? Right. I, I'm not sure who's who, because I read the book in high school. I don't remember. But they point out this kid saves this slave, and they go away on a boat or something. And every religious authority said that slavery was God-given, God-ordained. God chose me to enslave these people. And in Sunday school, they might have talked about, if you see a slave escaping, God wants you to turn him in because he's supposed to be a slave and we are supposed to be his master. God said so. Of course, it wasn't God or Jesus. It was another version of ego, right? But at the end, at the end of Tom Sawyer, I didn't realize, I, I should just read it again. Time has been a factor with me. I should read it again. At the end, this kid has saved this guy, and he's thinking to himself, I guess I'm going to hell. <laughs> because the t Mark Twain, man. <laughs> You know, Mark Twain, man, you know? I guess I'm going to hell. My preacher, my pastor, whatever, I'm badly paraphrasing. He told me I'm supposed to turn these guys, and I didn't. I guess I'm going... His preacher, whatever you call it, you know, his church, he went against the church and helped this guy slave, uh, escape. Man, you know, like, first of all, how hip is Mark Twain? Right. You know, unbelievably hip. But it just shows you that a message, and I heard this once, but I can't remember what it was. It starts as a truth, it blossoms into something, and decays into heresy. Oh, no, it starts as a truth, it blossoms into something, it then turns into heresy and decays into superstition. That is the well art. Said. Yeah. Yeah, I forget who said it, and I'm missing one of the words, but you can see that a lot of, in a lot of uh, institutionalized spiritual spiritual institutions, otherwise known as religions, actually. You know? So I don't know how we got here, and I hope <laughs> I don't get any weird visitations, you know. <laughs> there is a risk. In this very country, in this very time, there is a risk of, I think, at every time, there's always been a risk to go against convention and simply tell the truth. If what I'm saying is the truth, it's the truth as I see it, and people, others are ready to disagree. But I'm in circles sometimes where we're sharing about what we think life is. And I've had people get aggress aggressive to me because I didn't share that Judeo-Christian view, you know? Uh, and some people, it's more than not okay, you know? Now, there are that wear it beautifully like a loose garment. You want to hear a funny story? I mean, I know this is going wherever. No, like I'm digging. I'm digging where this you is going. You know who Bobby McFerrin is? Yeah, okay, you're yeah, yeah. Bobby McFerrin. I did a record with him. I want you to send me this because this is not the usual interview I do. So I want to share it with some friends. Yeah. Um, Bobby McFerrin, before he was famous, uh, I used to work with Chico Freeman. Really great saxophone player. And his father, oh, Freeman, I can't think of his first name. Really great saxophone player, right? Chico and I played together quite a bit. We did some gigs. And he was doing some recording. And he did a record called Tangents for a big label with a good budget. We went to a studio in Long Island. And we spent three, four days there. If you're a jazz musician, you know the budget for a jazz record is one day in the studio, maybe two. Actually, that's all in the past. There are no budgets for jazz records. You don't even get paid for a jazz record. You have to make it and give it to them. And you're lucky if they don't put in the contract that you have to buy 200 of them yourself. <laughs> now, that's not me. I'm old school and I'm just famous enough that somebody will pay me to make a record. 
And if they don't, I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah. But you know what? The young jazz musician fully expects to do so. Right. But that's the subject. So we're in the studio. I, I don't remember how many days. It seemed, maybe it was over the weekend. Three, four days. And he had Bobby McFerrin on it. I'd never heard of him. Nobody had. And he played me a cassette tape. Bobby, I don't know if he ever released it. It was all the tracks was Bobby. You know, like take yeah. six. It was all Bobby was the first to sing like that. You can hear take six and you realize they must have heard Bobby McFerrin, you know, just chronologically. Before Bobby McFerrin, I don't think that kind of gospel was around and jazz harmony was around. Well, yeah, I can't say that because the high lows, a bunch of groups in the 40s and 50s, they were great, but Bobby gave it a different thing and take six definitely took it in a new direction. But anyway, so he's playing me this thing of this guy, Bobby McFerrin, I'm like, this is unbelievable. So he's got him on the record, right? So I wrote one tune on that record, maybe two, I don't remember, a tune called Computerized Indifference. And it was like sort of a seven and a half bar beat thing, uh, seven and a half bars. Yeah. And techno, very <laughs> 80s. Bop, bo-do, 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 bop, bo-do, bo-do-do-dee-dap, bop, bo-do. I think that was the line. And then I wrote all this hip shit on top of it. And Bobby sang on it. There were certain melodies that would double my voice. And there was a bridge where I wrote harmony like this. Um, make sure original music is on. Yeah. Like this. Uh, whatever. And I was like this. Whatever it was. Yeah. It was all, Bobby spent all night laying those parts in. It took all night. Now, Chico and I were keeping ourselves up, shall I say, artificially. <laughs> and Bobby's in the studio, you know, with except tea, he had tea and water, whatever. And he's looking at a music stand. And I'm assuming he's looking at the part, right? He quietly and under control, patiently, got all those parts done. You can find the record, Tangents. And then listen to this computerized indifference. And if you want to blend it with this podcast, you could do it, right? It is available. Now, at the end of the night, Chico and I are fried. Really fried. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I go into the, the, they had a lounge in this studio, and it was a pool table. And Bobby's in there now. He's just been up all night laying these parts. He's shooting pool. And he looks as fresh as a daisy. So I go into the studio. Well, I'm going to do this in right order. He left the room. I go in there to see what's on the music stand. That's a Bible. Remember what we were talking about. I'm saying the very same thing could be unbelievably inspired on how you use a Bible, how you are become a Christian, right? Okay. I don't want to go too far there. See a Bible. Now, I was the kind of cynical guy that if there was, back in the day, my father used to call those people, Jews and Christians, holy rollers. <laughs> On Saturday, he would look out the bay window and watch them go in the temple and go, those hypocrites, those are lawyers, and they lie all week. Then he would turn on a TV evangelist and spit at the TV. <laughs> These yeah. hypocrites, thieves, and there's a number in the bottom you're supposed to send them money, you know. Now, I always laughed at him, but don't think it wasn't somewhat character-forming. Right, this is what you're, right. Even without buying what my father was saying, I was probably subliminally embracing it, right? So I see this in my urge when I see what I would call a Bible thumper. He wasn't thumping. Bobby didn't say anything to us. When we went out there, his Bible was sitting there. So I go out there. He's just shooting pool. And I want to tweak him a little bit, right? So I say, hey, man, uh, I just noticed uh, on the uh, stand, you have a Bible. What's up with that, man? I'm hoping he'll start proselytizing. I'm hoping he'll start evangelizing, right? So that I can, you know, subtly be completely unmoved. Uh, I said, what's up with the Bible, man? He's shooting. When I look up, he goes, well, 
I believe everybody needs a little help. And I went, whoa. <laughs> it didn't work. I did not shake his hand, and he might have just started my faith. So I'll tell you this story to show that there really are no villains. There's only one villain. It's the ego. And it turns blessed souls into villains. Whether it's greed, power, enslavement, everything is done because the ego has, however this works, I don't know if it's the ego and the mind or the mind and the ego or the ego's in the mind, but whatever, the ego infects the mind. And I guess by, by association, the spirit with fear. At the root of it all, it's fear. What people, no matter what they do, no matter how horrible it is, everybody, this is why I accept I've heard certain holy people in other traditions. All searches are the search for God. That's a hard pill to swallow. You're telling me somebody killed somebody, but they were really searching for God. If you buy into the total you know, equanimity of it, yes. Every ego is searching for safety. If a person is beset by ego, they are either consciously or subconsciously looking for a way to feel safe. What do I need to do so I feel secure? I may need to dominate everyone around me. I may need to get money from other people. I may need to, I, I can't really see it myself, but I will buy the idea. I may need to enslave people in order to feel superior. Why do I need to feel superior? Because I'm very, very insecure, you know? It's so interesting, you know, right? Where, where it can go, you know? So in that way, the ego infects the spirit or the ego. And then what I talk about in the book is the space. I took that word because more than anything, I don't know what's in that place, but I know there's a space that a lot of things aren't there. When you get into the space, you use your breath to get into the space. And once in the space, you notice more the absence of things than the addition of things. It's the absence of fear. It's the absence of insecurity. It's the absence of doubt. It is, and in that space, you might want to input a few things like unconditional self-support. That's unconditional love is the term, but it's a big ask. So if you can't actually love yourself, how about just supporting yourself even if you're not sure why you should? That's how it's unconditional. It's not unconditional if you only support yourself if you did something that gives you a reason to. Like, and this is why, why I was doing music. If you need to play well to feel good about yourself, then you're putting that pressure on your playing. I need to play well. And that, ironically, will be the reason you don't play as well as you can. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It is exact, it's like a, it's not a paradox, and it's not an oxymoron, but certainly is ironic. That the desire to play well, and this is why my book sold many copies, because we have this common fragility, the ego. We have this common character defect, the ego. You know, we have this common, we unite in our woundedness in a way, more than anything else, everybody, you could ask anybody, think about a time when you really need to show everybody how good you played. How'd you play? And exactly, that's the answer I got 99,999 times out of 100,000. There was one person, and there's probably a few more, but overwhelmingly, right? Now think about a time you didn't care how you played. Everybody says better. That's the fundamental thing of effortless mastery. And it still powers the second book, Becoming the Instrument. Well, if that's the case, now that you know that trying wasn't making you play better, it was actually making you play worse, you're never going to try again, right? And you're laughing. Yep. <laughs> and you does laugh because we all have this, we're very united in this. Because even though you know that now, you're still going to try after about five bars. <laughs> And because of neurological pathways, now I'm going to just stop it right there, not the, not the interview.
Yeah. But that is how the entire courses of, I, have, I teach courses. I have the Everless Mystery Institute at Berkeley College of Music. I teach them online. And from where we just were, everything unfolds from there. Why, when I know not trying makes me play better, would I still try? And now it comes down to reprogramming the mind, reconditioning yourself, changing the polarity, changing the apps, or I like to say changing the operating system. Because if you change the operating system, a whole a set of app, previous apps don't run on that system. The self-doubt app does not run on an operating system that fosters self-love or self-acceptance, self-esteem. If the operating system has a fundamental thing in it, that's self-esteem. It won't run self-doubt apps. <laughs> and there's other apps that will really flourish on it, like self-love. Maybe you have to build up to that. But what about self-acceptance? What about, this is not a term, self-embracement, but if you're going to choose the very difficult and dangerous path of being a musician, how about embracing yourself and making that decision? Yeah. So of course we believe that that's the right way, but isn't it practical? Do you play better or worse when you embrace yourself? How do you play when you don't embrace yourself? Worse. So the, the brilliance of Everless Mastery is that I was born out of trying to help musicians get out of their own way. I didn't intend to do it. As you saw in the book, there's a few teachers I had that took me on that path, but I was obviously meant for that path because it then congealed into a whole third rail, so to speak. That's a mix of a lot of things, but it's not because, I'm erud because of erudition. It was meant to come through me. I hate to sound like kind of biblical there, but what I've taught was meant to happen to me, and then it was meant to come through me because it did so effortlessly, <laughs> you know, to use a word. I'm just talking right now. I'm not even thinking. And since then, the things that have happened, including the karmic journey of the book, has been incredible. What I have to do is not get caught up in the mysticism of what has happened to me or the book, and, and what's what can be much more grounding is to try to stay with the gratitude that whatever has happened has really been a benefit to me, my family. Gratitude is a great grounding. And I, I'm very late to the game of gratitude. I had a, a teacher that I would just talk to on the phone. It wasn't really officially a teacher. He never, we didn't have one conversation for years without him mentioning that he was grateful. I said, oh, yeah, thanks for saying that again. I keep forgetting. I keep forgetting to be grateful, you know. And only a few years ago, I started feeling grateful for everything. Everything. If I'm outside, it's really cold. I mean, really cold. And my hands are freezing. I don't have gloves on. There's a restaurant. I duck into the restaurant. I'm grateful there was a restaurant there to warm myself. But you can't stay in the restaurant if you don't order something. I'm grateful. I had the money to order something so I could stay in there. You know what I'm saying? I went not realizing much of what I had to be grateful for. I'm talking about most of my life, okay, Dave? I'm not talking about when I was a boy. Most of my life, it's not that I was chronically ungrateful. I just never thought of being grateful. And whenever I talked to this guy, he would remind me of gratitude. Oh, yeah, thanks, man. Gratitude feels better than ungratitude. That's why I would brace it. Feels good, you know? Then something flipped, some switch. I had a lot to do with the pandemic because during the pandemic, all I did was teach. Obviously, none of us musicians went out and played. I kind of taught wall to wall this stuff that I know. And I didn't realize the benefit it would be to me, how high I would get helping people that much. Teaching was always in the mix with performing. Any musician would rather... And nobody ever said, oh, I got it. someone wants me to play Carnegie Hall. No, no, I've got to teach an ear training class, man. That's my shit. You know, nobody teaches instead of what their heart's desire was for playing. Many people are very dedicated to teaching. And, and I mean, there are people that already have been successful and they choose to teach. But a very common model is teaching became another way to make a living if you didn't get to play enough. And most 
musicians don't get to play enough. So it's very common. We can at least say that, right? But I mean, I got to play enough, but I also had this great honor Berkeley gave me. They didn't just want me to teach, like in the piano department or something. They wanted me to do a whole thing based on my book. That's really an honor, you know? And it's really the best way I can help anybody is by teaching what I know. Don't hand me a syllabus. Anybody can do that. I'm not going to do that, you know? But during the pandemic, I did little else. And sometimes I felt like I was walking on air. And when I came out of that pandemic, I would say that the intoxication of teaching might have replaced the intoxication of playing. And when I play, I'm even more intoxicated now. But I don't do it that much, and I'm not concerned because teaching has provided my living. So I only want to perform. I, I don't not want to perform, but I have a manager since the late 90s. I told him, don't look for anything. If something comes in, we'll evaluate it. But I'm making enough money teaching, and I can't say I'm missing playing. Because teaching has become as much of a joy as playing ever was, sometimes even more. I think that's the end of that whole sequence. So if you have another question, oh, that, yeah. was only like, that was only like 10 minutes, right? Yeah. <laughs> But it's beautiful, and in in a in a way, it's really interesting. Like, so also being someone who teaches, and kind of getting it's when you get that 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 breakthrough of seeing someone get a thing, or seeing someone grasp a little bit more of themselves. I think you yeah. say it as in their success is your success in some. I haven't part. said that. That absolutely is what I meant with whatever I did say. Maybe I did say it. I said a lot of things, but that's not <laughs> the truth. You said it. I heard it. That's the truth. And like, Let's put it this way. You are much happier. It's not even are you a better teacher. Yeah. I've really boiled it down to this. What makes me happy? And what makes me fearful? Or what makes me happy? What makes me sad? What makes me content? And what makes me unsatisfied? What makes me uh, self-affirming? And what makes me scared? You know? And on the ledger of what makes me happy, whatever is their success becomes my success. When that actually becomes true, you're skating, you're skating on an airstream, you know? Bumping along, trying to sound like you give a shit. You actually give a shit. That's much easier than looking like you give a shit. That's exhausting, I did that. <laughs> yeah. You don't wanna look like you don't give a shit. You wanna look like, oh yeah, I'm very into your success. But you really don't, so. You, the energy to look like you do is much more than actually, and I don't know why it happened. I have to say it was this wall-to-wall -wall teaching during the pandemic. I went into a service mode. The mind is a programmable thing, and I must have moved into another subtle area of my brain that actually thrives on service. I've heard about people like that, and I've admired people like that, but I never really felt. And I had the gift of serving. I do have a gift of giving people the truth that will help them play better. That's where it all started, right? But I didn't really care about them. I hoped that it would create greater money or, you know, like if I went to several schools, the value is that I could take my trio and we could do a tour and the tour would be financed by those schools I visited. Right, right, so right. It's very, it's very exactly what I'm saying, right? Now I might still do that, but the teaching feels as much or more of the intoxicating joy as the gig. The gig is just another way of saying the same thing. Hey, check this out, guys. Anybody could do this. You may not do it on this level, but don't deny yourself the permission to absolutely intoxicate yourself with sound. If I can do it with this. <laughs> you know? And how much do you have to be able to play if you have the right understanding? you really how good you really have to play in order to get the secret treasure of music which is self-intoxication which is very well written about in the Hindu scriptures the Mahabharata the Bhagavad Gita the Vedas you know intoxication is a word I don't know the Bible so it might be there somewhere but you don't hear intoxication tossed around much among Judeo-Christians but it's quite a prevalent word in the spiritual literature of uh, Hinduism, Jainism, Buddhism. 
you know, I'm not an advocate for the East. It just happens that we keep coming back to a point of truth, I believe. For me, it's the truth. That is well better represented in Eastern scriptural philosophy than I am aware of. So I'm also allowing for the fact of simple ignorance of mine that I've heard about in Western scriptural, well, it's scripture. I've heard it a bit in Western philosophy, but it's usually a philosopher who's been influenced by East, the East. <laughs> so it might be a Westerner, but he said, you know, they, there's some pop cultural belief that Jesus didn't die, that he went to, the, to India. You ever hear this pop no. stuff? Yeah, I have no idea if it's true. And that much of what he learned was from, you know, it, it doesn't have to be true, but they, you can see the logic behind it. If you look at Jesus' statements, if they are his statements, that's why I can't be too definitive because, you know, if you tell me this is what Jesus said, okay. Now, I've been interviewed many times. And typically, I'll ask somebody who's been interviewed. Have you ever been interviewed? Uh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Is it uncommon to be misquoted? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have to even assume that Jesus wasn't misquoted let alone assume that he even said that stuff. But if we make those assumptions and we just take the statements at face value and not contextually in the context of, say, Christianity, which is a, a religion or several versions, right? If we just take those statements, don't they agree perfectly with statements made by Buddhist monks, statements made by Indian gurus, you know? I got this, I got this book. I got it right here. I want to find the title for it. Actually. Yeah. I'm going to have to go in a minute oh, because okay. I've been on all day and this was an hour and my poor wife is going to make dinner that's going to be ready somewhere around the 7 o'clock. And she's from Cleveland, Ohio, by the oh, way. Oh, really? No way. Yeah. Hey, you know Jamie Haddad? Uh, Jamie Haddad. That sounds really familiar. Oh, I want Yeah, to he's like a luminary from Cleveland, Ohio. A great drummer. He played with Paul Simon probably okay. 20 years he played with everybody. He's a pioneer. Uh, Bill Durango was a pioneer jazz musician, played with Charlie Parker. He had a music store in Cleveland. Way back, and the guys my age used to be kids that sat at his feet. Skip Haddon, a drummer. Ernie Krivda. Yeah, you know Ernie? yeah, yeah. I know, yeah, yeah. Ernie is popular to this day in the Cleveland scene. Well, I, you know, anyway... I know where you're from. <laughs> so what were you going to say? What were you going to say? Oh, the book, the, a long time ago, it's called Parallel Sayings. And it's just, it's a whole book kind of on, on what we're talking about this moment. It just takes sayings from every kind of Eastern, right. in, in, in like, this is what they're saying, but it's pretty much the same thing here. And like, it, it's, I always found like this, this need for balance, right? Like balance really struck me. So like, kind of this whole conversation of this ego kind of getting out of the way, throwing it kind of out of balance in a way makes those points of how like, I, I, how you said it was very well said, how it kind of poisons everything and dilutes it and draws it towards something else. Ego, ego, yeah. for lack of a better word. One word, I say ego, and you know all the ramifications of ego. So when you say ego pollutes the truth, we can understand it quickly. It's just the least of my words. But I'm sure that book is inescapable to see that if you take the actual quotations of actual great beings, a great being is someone that realizes they're great while they're still in a body. You know, they weren't divine once they died. Of course, we all are. But in the Indian culture, again, a guru is someone that realizes their divinity while they're still in a body. Now, if you, that book, I'm assuming, is sayings from different divine beings that were hu human. You would tell me the concept, if not the words, are almost identical. It's all the same notes. I would go to the religion and the dogma to impose all those differences. Mm -hmm. And on that, my note, on that note, my good friend Dave, I shall go 
and honor my wife's dinner by eating it. <laughs> well, well, this is a lot of fun, man. Thank you. I wasn't expecting. I was expecting that entry, but you took a different track right away by asking me about the book Illusions. So I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate your time and I appreciate your music and your books. Like they've done a lot for me, and um, this has been awesome. <laughs> Listen to Zig at the Gig Podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang. <laughs>